Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that all of Scripture is breathed out by you. Thank you that it is all useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness, and makes us wise for salvation. Father, thank you that is true of this chapter uh, of your words, and so we ask that you would speak to us now uh, as we take time to look at it together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you, you've done a bit of listening, so uh, don't worry, I'm not going to do this every week, but I'm going to get you to talk just for a minute. Um, just talk to the person next to your people around you uh, about whether or not you have made any New Year's resolutions, what they are. If you haven't, um, talk to them about if you could make one New Year's resolution that you could guarantee would be successful, what would it be? 30 seconds. Okay, that's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to get. Um, maybe, maybe carry on telling the person next to you uh, about news resolutions after the, after the end of the service. I, I don't know whether you're a, a New Year's resolution kind of person this evening. Apparently, uh, 50 or so percent of Brits make New Year's res- resolutions every year. Uh, but I wonder whether you ever, ever thought or ever wondered, why do we do it? Why is it that, that every 12 months or so we recommit or resolve to, to do the same old things? If I, was, if I was convinced, say, five years ago that, that being fit and eating healthily and spending a bit less time on my phone were good things to do, why do I have to recommit to doing them every single year? Why not just get it right the first time? Why do we do it to ourselves? And the slightly kind of depressing answer, I guess, is that, is that we fail, isn't it? Is that we fail at those resolutions. We give up. We, we lose interest. We, we get a bit bored. 50 or so percent of people make New Year's resolutions, but about 80% of them are broken by the end of January. The reason we need to resolve to, to do the same things is that we repeatedly fail at doing them. And so... This kind of time of year, or at least by the end of January, it seems, we find ourselves asking, what went wrong? What, what happened? I was so committed, I, I was so convinced that this was going to be the year, and already I failed. What went wrong? And maybe, maybe you found yourself at different points in your life asking something similar as a Christian. You're here this evening, perhaps, as someone who who believes the gospel, the good news that we thought about this morning, that Jesus died for your sin and rose to bring you forgiveness and life with him forever. You believe that. You know it's true. And so you've committed to wholeheartedly following the Lord Jesus, taking up your cross, denying yourself. You're convinced, you're committed, but, but then you mess up. 
then you slip back into those same old sinful habits, the things you swore you would never do again. And so you're left asking, what went wrong? What happened? And it's that, that question and that, I suppose, that feeling that, that brings us to the book of Judges. You see, the big question that we're going to see as we come to this book is, what went wrong? If you flicked back just one book in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, you'd find that things were going pretty well for the people of God. God had had brought his people, the Israelites, into the land that he had promised them, the land of Canaan. And they had begun this incredible campaign where they, they were conquering the land. The story of Joshua is, is largely a story of battles won and lands, territories conquered. But, but more than that, it's also a story where, where the Israelites, they recognize the good times they're enjoying, the success they're enjoying. It's all down to God. It's the Lord who gives them victory after victory after victory. It's the Lord who brings down the likes of Jericho when all the Israelites have to do is blow a few trumpets and march around in circles. And so the book of Joshua closes with the people of God united in their praise and committed in their obedience to the Lord. It's good times for Israel. But it doesn't last long. Just two chapters into the book of Judges, in chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. Just one generation. That's all it takes. One generation for the people to forget the Lord. Despite all he had done for them, they turned their backs on him. And so by the time we reach the end of the book of Judges, we read these words. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. It's a long way from the glory days of Joshua. And so the big question the book leaves us with is, what happened? What what went wrong, Israel? And what, if anything, can you do about it? And you might be thinking, and you may have been thinking as we had that relatively long reading in chapter 1, this is kind of vaguely interesting. It feels a bit detached, a bit irrelevant. How, How does it matter for me on a Sunday evening at the beginning of 2022? What difference do the ups and downs of ancient Israel make to me? And so as we sort of start digging into this book together, let me just suggest two things briefly. As we come to Judges, the first thing we need to remember is that Judges remains relevant for us because God remains the same. One of the mistakes that people sometimes make is to treat the God that we find here in the Old Testament as someone completely different from the God we find in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard someone say something like this, that that the Old Testament God is all about judgment and violence and blood and fire and destruction. 
Whereas the God we find in the New Testament, the, the God we meet in Jesus, well, he's about peace, love, and long walks on the beach. But that distinction is just not what the Bible teaches. Uh, yeah, we live in a completely different time and place and culture and context to the people of Israel that we've just read about. But whilst everything else has changed, God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so judges will help us to get to know God better. It's relevant because God is the same. But secondly, judges is relevant because Jesus is necessary. As we're going to see, lots of this book is pretty negative. It's a period of Israel's history marked by deliberate disobedience and repeated rebellion. Which means there's, if there's one thing we've got to grasp by the end of this book, it's that, that, that people back then and still people today need help. It's as we see Israel's repeated rebellion and, and as we see our own rebellion in our, in our hearts that we recognize that we need a rescue. Just like our, our New Year's resolutions, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how committed or convinced we are. In the end, we cannot sort ourselves out. We can't fix the fundamental problem that is in our hearts. We need a rescuer. We need someone to come and save us from ourselves, to, to remake our broken hearts. And that is what we find in Jesus. Judges is this book all about humanity's persistent rebellion against God. But wonderfully, it's also a book about God's perfect rescuer, Jesus. So with all that in mind, let's have a look at this opening chapter. And I want us to notice just two things this evening. Uh, the first is that at the beginning we see a courageous conquest. A courageous conquest. Look at verse 1 again. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first and fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I've given the land into their hands. Joshua, Israel's heroic leader, has died. But the task of conquering the land is still unfinished. And initially it seems like Israel kind of responds well to the challenge, doesn't it? They, they trust the Lord, they believe his promise that he will give them the land, verse 2. And so, verse 3, they are united in obedience to the Lord. And the result is victory. The Canaanites and Perizzites are defeated in verse 4. Jerusalem is taken in verse 8. Verse 12, we meet the war hero, Caleb, and his nephew, Othniel. We're going to find out more about Othniel in a few weeks' time. And so, as we skip all the way around to verse 17, we read that the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living Zephyr. They totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The point of that first section is that it is victory after victory for Israel. The story of Joshua is continuing. It's good news. And again, we mustn't miss the big point. Just as in Joshua, we see it is all down to the Lord. It's repeated for us, isn't it? Verse 2, it's the Lord who gave the land into their hands. 
At verse 4, it's the Lord who gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites over to Israel. It's the Lord who is responsible for it all. Uh, even this, uh, this pagan leader, Adonai Bezek, literally Lord of Bezek, understands that in verse 7. He knows it's the Lord that's doing this, the God of Israel. It's the Lord who gives the victory. But again, we just need to pause there, don't we? We need to pause there because I imagine that, that some of us might have slightly mixed feelings about the things we're reading here. We might be used to stories of battles won from Sunday school, but, but if we're not, or even if we are, we, yeah, we can rejoice in, in kind of God's victory over his enemies, but at the same time, we can, we can recoil a bit, can't we, at the thought of God being responsible for so much bloodshed. Talk of thumbs and toes being cut off and Canaanites being killed in their thousands. It's not easy reading. So how are we meant to think about these things? Well, the first thing we need to see is that God is judging the Canaanites. Just listen to what Moses told Israel back in Deuteronomy uh, a bit before this time. He said, after the Lord your God has driven the nations out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. The killing of the Canaanites that we read about in Judges has nothing to do with ethnic cleansing, or the moral superiority of the Israelites. They are no better. No, this is about the judgment of God against a wicked nation. Elsewhere in the Bible and in the history books, we find out that the Canaanites were a brutal people. They were a people marked by incest, bestiality, child sacrifice, and extreme violence. And so after years and years of patience with them, it's at this point here that God decides to judge them for that wickedness. God is a holy God and he will not put up with evil like this forever. He will act in judgment. And so right at the start, that should be a sobering reminder for us, shouldn't it? Because as we thought about at the beginning, God hasn't changed he still takes sin and evil and wickedness incredibly seriously. Which means every single human being will face his judgment. It is just a matter of timing. And in God's wisdom, the Canaanites' time was up. This is about God's judgment against wickedness, but it's also about God's protection of his people. You see, God knew that, that if these Canaanites were allowed to carry on living in the land, they would eventually become a spiritual threat to the Israelites. Again, back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God said this, make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. In other words, God says, if you don't get rid of the Canaanites, if you don't push them out of the land, if you don't remove them, 
then they will lead you astray. They will lead you away from me to the worship of other gods. And as we're going to see, that is exactly what happens. Judges begins with this courageous conquest, but it's not long before it turns to cowardly compromise. And that's what we see next, cowardly compromise. In the first half of chapter 1, everything is going great for Israel. They're united in obedience to the Lord, and they experience victory after victory after victory. They are unstoppable. But then comes verse 19. Just look there with me. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. For the first time, it seems that the Israelites are unable to complete the job, unable to defeat the enemy before them. And from that point on, it's like Israel's campaign comes grinding to a halt. Every attempt at conquest is left incomplete. You can see it's repeated through the verses. Verse 21, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Giza. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites. And so by the time we reach verse 34, things have flipped around. Verse 34, the Amorites confined the Danites, that's an Israelite tribe, to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. It's a very different picture from the beginning of the chapter, isn't it? And so already we find ourselves asking, what's gone wrong? What's happened to this, this amazing campaign, this, this conquest? Were the Canaanites just too strong in the end? Did Israel not, not realize they had iron chariots? Was that too much for them to handle, too much for God to handle? The answer is obviously no, of course it wasn't. Back in Joshua chapter 17, the Lord told the Israelites that though the Canaanites have chariots of iron and though they are strong, you can drive them out, you can do it. And the problem here isn't a military one, it's a spiritual one. All the Israelites had to do was trust the Lord. All they had to do was believe the promises that he had made them. Look back and see all that he had done for them in the past, and everything would have been okay. But less than a chapter into the book, that is the one thing they are not willing to do. Despite all the Lord had done for them in the past, despite all he was doing right in front of them in the present, and despite all that he had promised them for the future, Israel thought they knew better. They decided to do things their own way rather than trusting God's way. And so slowly but surely, their campaign went from courageous conquest to cowardly compromise. Why? What possible reason would Israel have to give up on the Lord and go their own way? Chapter 1 doesn't give us specific reasons for Israel's compromise, but it's not that hard to work it out, is it? Uh, firstly, there would have been fear. Uh, God might have told them uh, back with Joshua that if they were to come up against these uh, iron chariots, that they're not to worry about it. But that's very different to standing and staring them right in the face, isn't it? Could they really beat an army like that? 
Could they really defeat these people? So much stronger, so much better equipped than them? Well, I don't think so. And so instead of throwing themselves into battle, the Israelites, they, they held back. They looked for an alternative solution. They, they made a deal, an, an alliance. No need to fight. Let's just be friends. You, you can even have the nice plains. We, we'll stay up in the hills if you like. Fear led to compromise. And so did attraction. As we're going to see a lot more as we go through Judges, it's clear that many of the Israelites actually quite liked the Canaanites. They didn't seem all that bad. Yeah, they worship different gods, they live for different things, but apart from that, well, they've got a lot going for them. Anyway, what's the use in driving them out completely? We don't have to marry them or anything. We don't have to join their religion. Surely it's better just to live peacefully with them. In fact, the Israelites thought maybe we could even put them to good use. They, they could be our slaves, our servants. Let's not get rid of them. Fear and attraction. There are two reasons for Israel's compromise and two reasons that, well, that God's people can still compromise today. As we said on, earlier on, our, our situation is very different to the Israelites. We are not called to conquer the promised land. We're not instruments of God's judgment against wicked nations. But like the Israelites, we are called to live in wholehearted obedience to the Lord. We're to respond to his amazing love and grace to us in the Lord Jesus by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. As the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, we're to put to death the sinful habits that once controlled us. Or in Ephesians, we're to, we're to fight against the, the powers of evil and darkness in this world, not with military might, but with God's word and with prayer. We don't conquer nations, but we do make disciples, proclaiming the gospel into a hostile world, whatever the cost. And so just like Israel, we can be tempted to compromise, can't we? We can fear what the world will think of us if we speak about Jesus. We can fear that we will be considered strange or, or offensive if we don't join in and celebrate everything that the world does. And so we think maybe the best way is just to try and blend in, to go along with it. We hope somehow that, that people will like us once they realize that we're not that different, really. But we can fear the world. And we can be attracted to it. Whether it's people's possessions or their ambitions, whether it's their sex life or their social life, we can look at the world around us and think, that looks like fun. Why can't I have some of that? Surely God wants me to be happy. That looks like it's going to make me happy, so... That's got to be okay, right? Do you see? Fear and attraction lead to compromise. It was true for Israel and it remains true today. Now we're going to see a lot more uh, of what all of that looks like as we go through Judges this term. 
But as we close, I want us just to briefly see that choosing to compromise in the end has devastating consequences. Just look at chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you. Their gods will become snares to you. Israel might have thought they could be friendly neighbors with idol-worshipping, violent pagans. But God says, no. No, these people will become a trap. They will be a snare to you. And that is what we're going to see happening in Judges. It's why everything goes so wrong. Judges is a story of Israel's deliberate rebellion and the devastating consequences that follow. But wonderfully, it is much, much more than that. Because it's also a story of rescue. Despite Israel's sin, despite their repeated rebellion, Judges shows us the amazing mercy and grace of God. It shows us a God who is utterly faithful to his promises, completely committed to his people. So much so that he will send rescuer after rescuer after rescuer for them. So much so that one day he will send his own son to rescue them. His son who would be destroyed in the place of guilty sinners like you and me. Destroyed so that we could be forgiven and restored. And so please don't hear Please don't hear this term, that Judges is a book that's just meant to make us pull our socks up and try a bit harder in 2022. This is not a motivation for our New Year's resolutions to be better Christians. No, Judges is a book that will ho- I, I hope and pray will help us marvel at the Lord Jesus, at the one who comes to rescue rebellious sinners like you and me for his glory. Judges will draw our eyes to him. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we confess this evening that in our hearts we are just as rebellious, just as faithless, just as cowardly and compromising as the people of Israel. Father, we need help. We need a rescuer. We need someone to save us from ourselves. And so we thank and praise you this evening that you have sent that one, the Lord Jesus. Father, please help us to trust him. Help us to come to him for forgiveness, for restoration and reconciliation with you. And then, Father, please give us the strength to follow him In wholehearted obedience we pray, and we ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to sing as we close. uh, We're going to sing of God's...
faithfulness. So as the band uh, are up and ready, let's stand as they start and sing together.